Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Well, we made it. Mostly. Now that we're creeping up to the very end of 2022, it is time to look back over the past year and reflect on some of the big tech news stories that unfolded over the previous 12 months. And gosh, there were a ton of them. So when I started just putting together a bullet list of stories that I felt were particularly important... That list quickly stretched to a couple of pages, and and this was just a bullet list, right? I didn't give, like, context or anything. So this week, we are going to look back and talk about what happened in 2022 and why it was important both in the tech sphere and beyond. So this is just the first of those episodes. I'm taking a little more time to kind of cover these and not just say, hey, look at this headline. Now, before I jump into it, I also want to say I am not organizing these episodes chronologically, so it's not like we're going to start in January and end up in December at the end of them. Instead, I grouped stories kind of thematically, so that way we can, you know, look at things that were unfolding that were maybe not directly related to each other, but kind of give a, a an indication of general trends, that sort of thing. Now, that being said, our first story does happen to be one that began early in 2022. And that story is Microsoft's bid to acquire Activision Blizzard, the video game company. Now, first off, Microsoft is perhaps best known for the Windows operating system, or arguably the Office suite of products, Uh, Among gamers, it is widely known as the company behind Xbox and Xbox Game Pass. And Activision Blizzard is a video game company that traces its lineage all the way back to 1979. In fact, Activision got started just four years after Microsoft launched. And that whole history is fascinating because Activision was a splinter group off of Atari. But the history of Activision Blizzard gets super complicated and has a lot of hairpin turns and dead ends. And honestly, I've done episodes about it in the past, so we won't go into 
a ton of detail. But then we also have to talk about Blizzard Entertainment, a much younger game company compared to Activision. Uh, It had been founded in 1991, and Activision acquired Blizzard in 2008, and the consolidated power of these companies allowed it to perform quite well. In fact, depending upon how you want to measure it, Activision Blizzard is one of the top five largest video game companies in the world. But again, this depends on how you measure largest, right? Do you measure it by revenue? Do you measure it by market capitalization? But no matter how you look at it, Activision Blizzard is a very big, influential company in the video game space. Now, we first heard of Microsoft's plan to purchase Activision Blizzard in mid-January 2022. Microsoft's offer was to buy out Activision Blizzard for $95 per share in an all-cash transaction, and that would amount to around $68.7 billion. Billion with a B. That's a yowza right there. This was actually a hefty premium on Activision Blizzard stock, which over the last year hit a high of $86.90 and a low of $60.60. So $95 per share, pretty attractive price, right? So you tell shareholders, hey, We're going to pay you a premium on every single share you own. You just have to let us know if you're cool with it. And the shareholders are like, we're totally cool with it. But let's get a little more backstory because this whole thing has a lot of complications. So first up, in 2021, last year, several former and some current employees at Activision Blizzard came forward with accusations that the company was fostering a culture that allowed for sexual harassment, pay disparity, and discrimination. Further, that the CEO of the company, Bobby Kotick, had been aware of these problems for years and had failed to do anything about them. We heard many stories that were familiar to anyone who was paying attention during the Me Too movement, that the company's HR department was serving more as a shield for the company than as a a department looking out for employees. That's something that the more cynical folks out there will say is the real reason HR exists in the first place, not to protect employees, but to protect the company. Now, in retrospect, it was clear that this Microsoft deal was moving behind the scenes while this Activision Blizzard scandal story was unfolding back in 2021. But While the scandal was unfolding, folks were wondering why the company was being so reluctant to address the concerns that were being brought forth. Meanwhile, Activision Blizzard was also accused of trying to discourage employees from unionizing. There were pockets of employees in the company who wanted to organize into a union in order to negotiate better working conditions and compensation. It's illegal in the United States for a company to try and prevent that from happening. So that was also unfolding at the time. Microsoft's announcement was a bit of a relief for some people. Uh, The reaction among certain folks was that Microsoft was probably going to clean house if it took possession of Activision Blizzard, that it would do what the leadership at Activision Blizzard had seemed reluctant to do. But others worried that this would just mean employees would have an even harder time organizing because Microsoft was not exactly known for championing the rights of workers. And then there were questions about whether or not various regulatory bodies around the world would resist this acquisition. After all, Microsoft and Activision Blizzard are both involved in the video game business. And you could argue, well, yeah, that's just one part of Microsoft's overall business. It's not their primary focus, but it's still a major company in the video game industry. So would regulators view the acquisition as a reduction in overall competition within the market? Would they worry that this newly merged entity would end up hurting consumers down the line and discouraging competition? Now, over the course of 2022, these concerns started bubbling up. Now, we first really started seeing some resistance in the European Union. There were reports that Sony, another big player in the video game space, was bending the ear of regulators in the EU and the UK, that there were concerns that these merged companies would hold certain popular titles like Call of Duty and not publish them to Sony's PlayStation platform. 
Now, Microsoft representatives said repeatedly that there were no such plans to withhold titles from Sony players. They were arguing that if they were to do that, they would be leaving money on the table and that it would make no sense financially to prevent them from going to to the PlayStation. But then over here in the United States, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, got involved. Uh, It has brought a case against Microsoft and Activision Blizzard to prevent the merger. And the analysts that I follow say that the case is, in their opinion, a fairly weak one. That while Microsoft and Activision Blizzard are competitors, that this merger does not necessarily indicate a reduction in competition for the overall market. It seems to me that the general consensus is this deal will go through, but it will take longer than what Microsoft had hoped for originally. Now, I say it seems because I just don't know. It may very well be that Microsoft will abandon its deal. Because, on a similar note, this past year we saw one proposed merger fall through in the tech space due to regulatory obstruction. NVIDIA, the chip-making company that's best known for its graphics processing cards, had announced way back in 2020 that it intended to purchase the British semiconductor company ARM, best known as the company that designs ARM CPUs. So what ARM usually does is it designs a CPU architecture and then licenses that design out to fabricators that actually make the chips. Well, way back in 2016, uh, a Japanese conglomerate, SoftBank, which is a truly enormous company, purchased ARM for lots and lots of money, like many billions of dollars. So NVIDIA was going to buy ARM from SoftBank for $40 billion, pending regulatory approval. That approval did not come. UK regulators were concerned that ARM's operations are a matter of national security. Keep in mind, ARM is a British company. Obviously, this is already complicated by the fact that ARM's current owner is a Japanese company. So it's interesting that national security became a big concern for this particular transaction. Uh, I will say that SoftBank reportedly is preparing ARM for a, a public offering next year. So in other words, ARM will again become a a traded company on the stock market like it was before SoftBank took possession of the company back in 2016. Meanwhile, companies that rely on ARM processors, which include competitors to NVIDIA, were worried that NVIDIA's acquisition of ARM means that they would get cut off from access to those ARM processors. Or that they would see a big price hike, and thus this would be bad for competition. So those companies were objecting to this proposed merger. And the myriad of concerns from different sources ultimately led to NVIDIA and ARM walking away from this deal. That happened way back in February 2022. By my reckoning, that was 50 years ago. It might just feel like that. Now, some may point to this failed merger as one of the signs that the world in general is starting to push back against big tech. And I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But the NVIDIA and ARM deal had a lot of complicating and unique factors, from concerns about competition to that national security angle, which, you know, most mergers in tech don't involve. And then there was a further monkey wrench thrown into the works in the form of a Chinese subsidiary of ARM, ARM China, that really did not want to see the parent company change hands to an American owner. So you actually had a part of ARM itself that was objecting to this merger. So in other words, this NVIDIA ARM deal had a lot of factors that I don't think translate to the industry at large. They were unique for that specific set of circumstances. But all that being said, 2022 undeniably was a year in which we saw growing scrutiny and resistance to so-called big tech around the world. By the way, big tech, that's just a phrase that refers to obviously the largest, most influential companies within the tech space. And sometimes people who use big tech 
are really being more precise in that they're, they're being imprecise in their language, but they're specifically referencing four or five companies in particular, uh, Apple, Meta, Google, Amazon. And if they're referring to five, they throw Microsoft in there too. But big tech can also refer to other influential companies like NVIDIA or Oracle or, or Tencent or Intel, those kind of things. So when you read the phrase big tech, just keep in mind, a lot of journalists use that as shorthand for those five companies I first mentioned. Others will use it to just reference big, powerful, influential tech companies in general. And here in the United States, we saw some progressives put into positions of authority with regard to ensuring that markets stay fair and competitive, which was a real change of pace from the last, I don't know, like 40 years. So they include Lena Khan, who is the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC. So she's the one leading the U.S. charge against Microsoft and the Activision Blizzard merger. And there's also... Jonathan Cantor, who leads the antitrust division at the Justice Department. Figures like these are starting to throw roadblocks in the way of large tech companies, which have long been used to being able to get their own way. For example, Meta. Now, we're going to talk way more about Meta later on in this series of episodes about the big stories of 2022, but within this context, regulators have moved to block Meta from acquiring a tiny little VR company called Within Unlimited and its fitness app called Supernatural. They're saying that because the VR industry in general is a pretty small one, there are not that many players in the VR space, that Meta acquiring another VR company reduces competition in that space and that this would be bad for VR Moving forward, if VR and meta become synonymous with one another, that could mean a reduction in competition and innovation, and that's a bad thing. Now, we've also heard politicians float the idea of forcing meta to break up into smaller companies, similar to how the U.S. government broke up AT&T many years ago, though I should point out AT&T kind of recombined over the years, like Terminator 1000 style, like all those little drops of mercury. So... We'll see if that happens. Okay, we got a lot more to talk about with this line of tech stories from 2022, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We're back. Okay, so we were talking about regulations and the tech industry and sort of a pushback on big tech. Well, we really saw that take form over in the European Union. 
they have been pushing back against big tech quite a bit this year, including Meta. At the end of this year, in 2022, a story that's unfolding as I'm recording this, the European Commission launched an antitrust investigation into Meta specifically over how the company handles classified ads on Facebook. So the regulators are arguing that Meta gives preferential treatment to its own Facebook marketplace classified ads over other types of classified ads that could be posted to Facebook. This aligns with a similar case against Meta brought by the Competition and Markets Authority, which is the regulatory authority in the UK. Similarly, we saw more arguments against Apple and also Google's policies of taking a cut of all in-app purchases made in iOS or Android apps, respectively. Now, Apple tends to get a lot more focus about this, perhaps because until very recently, the company was strictly focused on only allowing users to download apps through the official Apple App Store, whereas Google, via Android, has allowed sideloading since the very beginning of Android. Sideloading is when you are able to load an app that's not in the official App Store. And while Google makes it possible, the company does warn users that this particular ability could lead to problems because you might end up downloading an app that is malicious. Uh, so there are risks involved, but Google says, hey, you're adults. You can make these decisions for yourself. Apple says, you know what? You don't know what's good for you. We're going to prevent that from happening. So you can only get them through the app store. They're two I'm being a little facetious with this, but they're, these are two fundamentally different approaches to how you allow your customers to get access to apps to run on your devices. Apple wants a much more controlled ecosystem that's not likely to run afoul of Apple's other you know, policies and procedures. So at the end of 2022, we learned that Apple is now preparing to change this policy. It's going to open up iOS devices to third-party app stores in order to be compliant with EU's Digital Markets Act, which I'll talk about later in this episode. So this is not going to happen immediately, but it should become a reality next year, which is a good thing because this particular EU requirement will go into effect in 2024. Now, you might remember that this issue really made headlines, the issue of in-app payments, really made headlines when Epic Games, the company behind the massively popular title Fortnite, attempted to circumvent Apple's ecosystem by allowing players who play Fortnite on iOS devices to kind of have a workaround so that they can make purchases within the game, but not through Apple's official in-app payment system. This was back in 2020, and then you had this massive battle between Apple and Epic that stretched into several court cases and lasted more than a year. Neither side was totally victorious by the end of it, but it snowballed, and over the last two years, we've seen growing resistance to this in-app payment policy, though apparently it was news to Elon Musk as he made a big stink over it while pushing Twitter's subscription tier, uh, Twitter Blue. But we'll talk way more about Elon Musk and Twitter in another episode. Not this one. I just don't have it in me. Plus, there's an ongoing story that is unfolding as I'm recording these, so I kind of want to see how it turns out. Anyway, to be clear, the issue isn't so much that Apple and Google take a cut of every in-app transaction. That's not really the problem. I mean, payment processors, as a rule, take a cut of every transaction. That's how they make money. The problem is that Apple and Google prevent any alternative in-app payment systems on their platforms. So the argument is that when there are no alternatives, there's no competition. And Apple tried to kind of be a little cheeky about this earlier this year and allowed some third-party payment systems for certain types of apps, but they also charged a premium for merchants to use these alternatives. So that meant that the app developer would actually see even more money diverted away from them and to the payment processor and to Apple, and would receive even less of every single transaction if they went with an alternative to Apple's in-app payment system. And you can bet that move did not go over well. Everyone said like, hey, we totally see what you're doing, Apple. Cut it out. 
Now, it will be interesting to see how these stories unfold next year. The EU and the UK in particular are taking a really tough stance. The US also is, but the US has had, like I said, decades of being very hands-off and very uh, almost laissez-faire about how, how companies have been able to conduct themselves and to consolidate. So this is like trying to act against a lot of momentum that had been building up for, for years and years and years in the United States. So it's a little different here. All right, now let's talk about the EU's Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. These are two pieces of legislation that are shaking things up for tech in general, and both of them were put into effect this year, or at least enacted this year. The The actual rules end up having kind of a, a rolling effect on when they come into full power. So there will be time for the tech industry to comply with all the different rules. The European Commission to the European Parliament proposed both pieces of legislation way back in December 2020. So it wasn't until this year that they were both passed into law after receiving lots of revisions and tweaks and whatnot. Now, in both cases, the acts help bring into alignment the laws that the various member countries of the European Union have had in place relating to specific internet matters. So what the heck do these laws say? Well, the Digital Services Act, or DSA, is primarily focused on illegal content on the internet and, it, and related issues like content moderation policies. Now, there are some policies that are going to sound very familiar to my fellow Americans, at least my fellow Americans who are up to speed on concepts like Safe Harbor and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Namely, that a platform, or an intermediary, as the EU calls them, is not liable for the content that users post to that platform, meaning a platform is not to be held as the responsible party for a user posting something illegal to that platform. So, for example, if I were to post illegal drug information, like maybe I'm trying to sell drugs on Facebook, and I post that to Facebook in the EU and it's against the law, that Facebook would not be held accountable for the fact that I did that. Except that this protection does have strict limits. Namely, once a platform becomes aware of the illegal material, it has to act to remove that material. Failure to act means the platform will be held responsible for allowing the illegal material to stay up online and they can face some really hefty fines, like 10% of their overall revenue in the EU. That's massive. So uh, also because the EU is applying these rules to sites and services that have more than 45 million EU users, it's pretty clear that regulators are really aiming this at big tech. This is a more strict stance than what we see here in the US with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. The Digital Services Act also aims to strip away the mystery behind how sites and services like Facebook and TikTok and YouTube work algorithmically. So essentially, the DSA says companies have to be able to explain how their recommendation algorithms work and, and to do so, you know, beyond just, hey, it just suggests things it thinks you'll like. So they have to explain how the algorithms pick and, and choose what content is served up to users. They also have to be clear on how the company decides what content to remove and when to remove it. So for companies that have policies that they will remove certain types of material, they have to be very transparent in how they make these determinations. The DSA requires companies to explain how they match advertisers to users you know, and what goes into targeted advertising, what kind of data gets pulled and used for that purpose. Now, considering the EU's protective stance around citizen data in the European Union, I suspect that last bit is going to end up shaking things up considerably for companies that depend heavily on ad revenue like Meta and Google. All right, now let's switch over to the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. So while the DSA is focused on illegal content online, the DMA aims to make e-commerce more fair and equitable. As such, it is aimed to encourage competition 
and to prevent monopolies and anti-competitive practices. So the goal of the DMA is to put a check on big tech so that the larger, more established companies can't just push around or gobble up or stamp out smaller companies. Now, considering that several tech companies got to where they are largely through numerous acquisitions, this could also be a huge blow to certain corporations out there. Uh, If you were to search any of the big tech five and include the word acquisitions or mergers, you'd probably end up with a pretty lengthy list over the years. Meta in particular has a reputation for acquiring companies that would otherwise pull attention away from Meta's platforms. The company is known for either buying up potential competitors or attempting to copy them in an effort to minimize their ability to pull Meta users away to other platforms. It is by no means the only company to follow this philosophy, I should add. It's just notorious for doing it. It's pretty obvious that Meta is in the crosshairs, in particular with the DMA. Uh, One of the act's measures is to make it illegal for any company that owns more than one platform from combining data from the two or more platforms about the same users. So in other words, if you're Meta and you have users on Facebook and on Instagram and they live in the EU, you cannot take the data of those users from Facebook and the data from those users on Instagram and combine them into one big database of information about those specific people, right? You can't combine these sources. And it's likely going to cause some technical challenges for some of these companies, which presumably have kind of developed into being an enormous data funnel, just gobbling up all the information from every outlet and combining it into like a a tasty data stew. The DMA concerns itself with gatekeepers. These are tech companies that dominate in one or more areas within the tech industry in general. So for example, Google is indisputably the dominant force in internet search. And as such, it is a gatekeeper in that respect. Apple is a gatekeeper for payment services on iOS. Uh, Meta is a gatekeeper for social networking. These are the kind of uh, ideas. Amazon also, big gatekeeper for online shopping. So the DMA says it, it is against the rules for any gatekeeper in whichever realm of tech they're looking at to give its own services preferential treatment over competitors. Uh, Amazon has been accused of doing this sort of thing in multiple places around the world, in India, here in the United States. So the accusation is that Amazon tends to promote Amazon-owned or Amazon-affiliated brands over those belonging to competitors. So the DMA is saying, hey, you can't do that. That's not fair. Uh, It'd be kind of like if you were to go into a grocery store and all the store-owned products are prominently displayed and they're easy to reach. And then all the other brands from anyone else are tucked out of the way and they're like placed really high up on the shelves or whatever. That's an unfair practice. And that's what the DMA is looking to prevent in the future. The DMA and the DSA have a lot more in them, but I am probably going to do full episodes about each of them. The important thing for this episode is that these two massive pieces of legislation unify the EU's approach to online content and business, and they send a message to the big tech companies that they aren't going to have quite as much freedom to do whatever they please moving forward. Okay, still got some more stories to cover before we conclude this particular episode, but first, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. 
Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. We're back. And you know what? We're still going to talk about the EU. But now let's talk about another measure that has forced one of the big tech companies to make some pretty significant changes in the near future. The European Parliament passed a measure that will require all mobile devices, including phones and cameras and things like that, to adopt the USB-C charging port by the end of 2024. So in other words, if you make a mobile device and you want to sell it in the EU, it has to have a USB-C charging port equipped. By 2026, it's also going to apply to laptop computers. Now, this law passed by overwhelming majority. There were 602 votes in favor of the measure. There were only 13 votes against it, and then there were eight members that abstained from the voting. And this measure means that one company in particular has to make a big change, and that company is Apple. Now, Apple has long leaned on proprietary charging ports and cables for many of its products. Since 2012, Apple iPhones, as well as several other Apple products, have used what Apple calls the Lightning Connector. By using a proprietary approach, Apple could achieve a few goals. For one, the company could actually design ports and cables that had features that the USB standard didn't, at the time, anyway. So that includes the ability to plug a lightning cable into a charging port in either direction. In other words, there's no right side up or anything like that. That's a good thing for consumers. It makes it easier to use the, the cables. I don't know how many times I've had like a USB micro or USB mini cable and I spent the first minute trying to figure out if I was trying to plug it in upside down or not. Uh, so yeah, plugging in older USB cables can be kind of a pain. So this was a good thing. But Apple had other reasons for doing this approach where they were a lot more self-serving. So a proprietary approach gives Apple more control over the supply chain, right? And any company that wanted to make its own lightning cables would have to pay Apple a licensing fee in order to do it. So in other words, locking down the ecosystem created revenue streams for Apple. You couldn't just go and buy a generic lightning cable and Apple gets no cut. Apple would get a cut no matter what, whether it came from Apple or it came from a company that was paying a licensing fee to Apple. Now, it might be more convenient for Apple users if their tech worked with industry standard cables, right? Like if it worked with the same cables that everything else works with. But that would mean Apple would be leaving money on the table. So Apple had resisted this for quite some time. But the EU's regulations now require Apple to play ball. The EU regulators said that by adopting this standard, there will be a reduction of e-waste. People won't need to keep different incompatible cables in like a junk drawer. And then when one cable wears out, they'd have to go and hunt for the right one in order to have a replacement. Now they'll be able to grab any USB-C cable they happen to have, and that will work just fine. Apple has said that forcing the company to adopt this standard is going to hurt consumers, but I don't think that very many people took those arguments seriously. And so Apple looks like it's going to conform to the EU's wishes, which also means 
that we will likely see the same thing happen worldwide. Though who knows, maybe Apple will try to keep two separate lines of products going where it keeps the lightning port everywhere else and it just does USB-C for the EU. We'll have to see. I don't think that would happen just because I, I would imagine that that really complicates the supply chain and the manufacturing process and it's just easier to adopt it worldwide, but we'll have to see. Okay, let's talk about another technological battle between government agencies and industries and tech companies. And this time, really, we're looking at two tech industries that are in a battle with one another. That would be the telecommunications industry and the aviation industry. So the United States Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, is involved in this as well. Now, this all has to do with 5G wireless communication, and this requires a bit of explanation. First of all, let's demystify 5G for a second. It's very easy to refer to 5G as being this super fast wireless internet connectivity solution, but really that's kind of misleading. For one thing, we're not so much talking about data speed, we're talking about bandwidth. So in other words, it's not how fast the zeros and ones are zooming around. Rather, it's how many zeros and ones can zoom around at the same time and be accepted by your device or sent from your device. There's also the matter of latency. That's the delay between an action and its reaction. Now, you want latency to be really low for certain operations. Actually, really, you typically want latency to be low for everything because we've really grown impatient. We hate watching delays. But some operations, low latency is absolutely critical. And one of 5G's promises is a reduction in latency. But 5G itself actually comes in a few different flavors. To be more accurate, there are a few different frequency bands within the electromagnetic spectrum that are called 5G. And at the lower frequencies, 5G isn't super duper fast, or rather doesn't have this enormous bandwidth. But it can work over long distances. It has a longer transmission range. Now, at the highest of 5G's frequencies, you've got incredible bandwidth, but you have a very short range of transmission. Uh, plus, at the very high frequencies, the waves have trouble penetrating solid surfaces. So if there happens to be a wall or a ceiling or something like that between you and the transmitter, you're not going to be able to enjoy those fiber-like connections on your device through that particular transmitter. Now, the reason I say all this is because the marketing of 5G can leave out some of these details. And so the basic consumer might expect to have an incredible wireless connection on their 5G device but in reality, when they actually use their device, they find the speed that they're enjoying isn't necessarily that much more impressive than what they had with LTE. But anyway, not all 5G is equal. That's kind of what I'm getting at. Now, the bit about 5G that's important for this story is that high power, high frequency 5G has the potential to interfere with specific older aviation equipment, in particular, radio altimeters. These are used by aircraft to determine altitude. In other words, how far from the ground the plane is. And as you can imagine, that data is pretty darn important, particularly for takeoffs and landings in low visibility situations specifically. So pilots kind of need to know how close they are to the ground in those situations. So then you have the US FAA which is looking out for airlines and airports and such, essentially looking out for the aviation industry. Then on the other side, you had the telecommunications companies like AT&T and Verizon. They were looking to expand 5G C-band services across the country, including in areas that are around airports. And that's where you get our initial conflict. You had the telecommunications companies that were looking to tap into more customers, selling them 5G services, and you had the airline industry concerned that these services could potentially interfere in aircraft operations. Now, the solution to this problem is actually fairly straightforward. Aircraft need a retrofit to shield radio altimeters 
from 5G interference. Essentially, they need to swap out a part. They need the old radio altimeters to be pulled out and new and improved radio altimeters that are resistant to this kind of interference to be installed. That's the solution. So it's literally about updating equipment to avoid the problem. But here's the thing. That equipment is wicked expensive. We're talking like 20 grand per instance. And then when you think about the fleets of aircraft across different airlines or the number of aircraft that specific companies like Boeing sell, that mounts up really quickly. So there was another matter that needed to be settled. Who is going to pay for it? Now, as you can imagine, neither the aviation industry nor the telecommunications industry wanted to be responsible for holding the bag when it came time to pay for these upgrades. The telecommunications industry was like, hey, this is your technology. It's your responsibility to do the upgrades. The aviation industry was like, hey, we wouldn't need to upgrade if you didn't start blasting interference near airports, so you should pay for the changes. And really, that's what this mostly boiled down to. So there was this kind of standoff between the telecommunications companies that were putting into place plans to launch these 5G services around airports. And then you had the aviation industry that was saying, hey, if you do that, you're going to cause delays and worse, and it will be on your head. It was kind of like they were playing chicken with each other. And once you understood what was going on, it got a little frustrating. In January of 2022, the telecommunications companies reduced the transmission power of 5G towers that were near certain very busy airports in the United States. This was a concession to avoid safety problems, particularly in low visibility situations, while everyone started to work on a more permanent solution. The deployment of 5G around airports in certain markets has been on hold in the meantime. This also has an impact on some populations that typically are underserved or sometimes unserved because a lot of the neighborhoods around airports tend to be for you know lower income areas of cities. And so part of the argument is that by delaying this, it is hurting those populations who don't have access to the technology they need in order to be connected, productive members of society, which, you know, there's some validity to that argument. Things are supposed to be on track next year because that's when AT&T and Verizon are going to lift their self-imposed restrictions that they've placed on themselves in order to, you know, comply with the needs of the aviation industry. But recently, Boeing asked federal regulators to delay that, to, to essentially force AT&T and Verizon to hold off on rolling those technologies out because they still need more time to upgrade systems on planes to make sure that they are resistant to 5G interference. So this is an ongoing struggle. Interestingly, meanwhile in the EU, there are plans to allow passengers to use 5G devices while they're actually on a flight. So here in the States, the issue involves 5G cell towers near airports. Like, we're not even talking about people in airplanes right now. We're talking about the actual physical infrastructure around airports. Meanwhile, in the EU, next year, passengers will be able to use their cellular phones while flying through the air. And you might wonder, what makes it safe to do that in the EU, but it's unsafe in the United States? And a big part of that harkens back to what I said earlier about there being different flavors of 5G. In the United States, the matter is about the so-called C-band of 5G frequencies, these higher frequency, higher power uh, uh, transmissions than what you find in the EU. The EU uses lower 5G frequencies than what we see around the United States. So it's not an apples-to-apples thing. 5G is not 5G, depending upon where you are, or at least it's not the same 5G. Now, all that being said, I'm not sure the average person is going to get great reception on flights in the EU, even if they are allowed to use 5G devices. Cell towers have a limited transmission range. This is why we need a lot of cell towers, because what happens is one cell tower will hand off service to the next. So as you move toward the edge of cell tower A's range of service, 
it can hand you off to cell tower B and your service isn't interrupted. But when you're way up in the sky, there's a distinct shortage of cellular towers around you. So you might not be able to get any signal anyway because you'll be at too high an altitude to do it. It would be possible to actually outfit planes with Pico cell towers, essentially these tiny little cell towers, and they would be able to cover the range of the, the aircraft with cell signals, and then it would beam a concentrated uh, data stream at terrestrial towers on the ground. But that would require even more equipment updates to planes, and we're seeing how that's going so far. So, all right, that is enough for this first episode about some of the big tech stories of 2022. And we're just getting started. We're going to have a bunch more of these episodes because there's so much to talk about. I mean, Elon Musk and Twitter alone, I have a feeling is going to be at least half an episode. We'll see. Uh, I don't know how much my tolerance can handle at this point because <laughs> it's been such a crazy story this whole year. And that's the story that's currently unfolding. As I record this, we're all waiting to find out if Elon Musk is actually going to step down as CEO because he held a poll about it and um, asked his his followers, should he step down or not? And the majority said, yes, you should. So we're waiting to hear what that amounts to. I'm sure I'll talk about that in, later on this week. Anyway, I hope you're all well. I hope your 2022 was a good one. I hope 2023 is even better. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. <laughs> People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in exactly. to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, right. which is different than empathy. Yeah. Right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.